very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to go into the third part of the podcast on American pragmatism and Bernie Sanders and American politics in general. Uh, In the earlier, in the first two parts, we talked about the practical approach of American pragmatism and how it limits the American political imagination so that they do not look for alternatives to neoliberal capitals. Here's a little recap of the last episode. Pragmatism does capture a certain spirit or national mood of America. See, pragmatism emphasizes doing over stating, the knowing how over the knowing that. America is the engineering-oriented Rome with its aqueducts to the theoretical artists and thinkers of ancient Greece. One of the dangers of pragmatism that technocratic questions of economic management have taken center stage. We don't debate questions about what type of country we want to be or what type of citizens we want to become. Perhaps we need to ask if economic goals and values should be our priority. We need a richer philosophy, one that has a framework to rank goals and values other than utility, a framework that helps us define what our goals and values should be. Pragmatism champions utility, which is a means rather than an end goal. It shows you how to get towards the ends that you want, and it leaves the hard work of defining goals outside the sphere of philosophy. Morality has got a bad name, in part because the term has been hijacked by the right. Think of the group, the moral majority. Also, think of the term family morality. These ideas and groups rose to prominence in the 1980s and since then have made any notion of morality be seen as a conservative talking point. But Morality is a very wide concept indeed. It seems safe to say it has no political affiliation. And it seems also safe to say that groups like the moral majority are not even that moral at all. They are religious and specifically they represent the hopes and wishes of a particular religious interest group rather than a universalizable morality. But they were very politically crafty to their cause in the sense that they monopolized talk of morality. After that, centrists and liberals were left to talk about technical issues. But Morality, not policy, is the language of the common person. The common people are less well-versed in technical and policy-oriented issues. And 
even if these issues were in the interests of, let's say, the working class, they were kicked in terms that the working class were unfamiliar with and were thus unmotivated by. They don't play well on TV. People talk a lot about the Southern strategy, where Nixon turned the Republican Party towards more directly racist policies and rhetoric to incite race-based fear into white voters and steal already racist voters from the South away from their historical Democrat Party affiliations for ever steering them into the arms of the Republican Party. But this hijacking of the talk of morality, I think this has even been more effective in stealing away working class voters from the Democrat Party. Perhaps, maybe, definitely. It's just a pet theory, though. Democrats who were able to talk a more moral game were highly successful. For example, Obama talked of hope and change very early in his candidacy, and this led to his popularity. But, alas, he never filled out a rich moral theory to give content to those very general moral words. But it was inspiring. Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and Al Gore were not so good at articulating any moral vision. And it left voters, as we know, cold. But now, look at Sanders when he talks about health care. He can talk about it in two ways. He stresses that Medicare for all can actually reduce American health care costs. That is an economic, technocratic argument. But also, he can talk about the shame of being a developed nation and not providing adequate health care for its citizens as a human right. So, that is moral talk. Moral talk. There is shame involved. There is moral obligation moral involved. By the money you are saving by the elimination of private insurance costs. And today, we tell the drug companies that the American people are sick and tired of the greed of the pharmaceutical industry we are no longer going to get ripped off and pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs on the Medicare for all. We're going to negotiate. So Sanders has this dual approach, but I find his moral discourse hits stronger than his technocratic talk. And perhaps more importantly, it's stronger. This moral talk can appeal to those voters who have long ago left the Democratic Party. What is often dismissed as populism is actually the citizens yearning for moral direction from their leaders. Sarah Smarsh in The Guardian talks about this yearning in our unique political times. An extreme climate is forcing politicians to invoke the concept of right and wrong 
To describe government-sanctioned separation of families at the Mexican-American border, for instance, wonky policy language does not suffice. It should be noted that one of the public intellectuals and political leaders best versed in moral rhetoric is Cornell West. West is a prominent American pragmatist, often citing the works of earlier pragmatists like William James and Ralph Waldo Emerson. So, perhaps there is something in pragmatism that can allow us to talk about goals and values rather than just using pragmatic theory to figure out means to those goals. But I am doubtful. I think it may be West's religious background that gives him such moral conviction rather than his pragmatism. A pragmatic theory allows us to hold all goals and values as merely contingent. And I just don't think that has the same psychological motivational factors that true committed political action requires. I think pragmatist par excellence, Richard Rorty's conception of the liberal ironist sums up this view best. Rorty was a somewhat public intellectual with a gift for conveying complex ideas in an accessible manner and who has been responsible for the revival of pragmatism from the 1970s onward. We're between intellect and sense, but think of ourselves in in the wake of Darwin as what nature called clever animals who find cleverer and cleverer ways of talking about what's going on and cleverer and cleverer ways of dealing with what's going on, but never do anything like you know, penetrating beyond the world of the senses or penetrating beyond appearance to reality or ascending from the body to the mind. For Rorty, the ideal type of liberal or leftist was one who had a contingent connection to any and all political beliefs. Rorty outlined three requirements that constitute the ironist liberal. He aimed to show how the notion of the ironist undercuts the rationality of conservative, reactionary, and totalitarian positions by maintaining the contingency of all beliefs. These criteria for one to be a liberal ironist are, to quote Rorty in his excellent 1989 book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. Number one. The liberal ironist has radical and continuing doubts about the final vocabulary or end goals she currently uses because she has been impressed by other vocabularies, vocabularies taken as final by people or books she has encountered. Number two, she realizes that argument phrased in her present vocabulary can neither underwrite nor dissolve these doubts. Number three, insofar as she philosophizes about her situation, she does not think that her vocabulary is closer to reality than others, that it is in touch with a power, not herself. So this is the ideal citizen for Rorty, the liberal ironist. And coming at the end of the Cold War and only 45 years removed from World War II in 1989. Rorty took such contingency to be positive, but 
it is hard to see how the ironist could ever turn contingency into conviction. At best, 30 years after Rorty conceived of his notion, it seems that he is just describing a model Clintonite with his notion of the ironist. Not the worst thing to be, no, but nothing to look to for motivation to get us out of over-worsening equality on this increasingly hot and salty planet. To sum up, what pragmatism has in reasonableness, it loses in motivation. Sadly, on the flip side, often what ideology has in motivation, it loses in reasonableness. And that's where we find ourselves for the time being. Thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast. 